Hi, this is Dr. Tom Rogers coming to you with a weekly podcast of what I call the Common Sense MD. I have another MD that's he's way more than common sense. He's way deeper than that. Dr. Ken Smith is with me today, a longtime friend, colleague, and uh, just a wonderful human being and very caring physician who I've sent patients to for many years. He worked with my dad, my brother in surgery. and I didn't pay you that much. I'm sorry. You can stop. <laughs> I'm not trying to build him up. I'm just telling you the truth. But anyway, and I, he also sent, I sent him patients. He sends me patients. So we're about the same age, and we think a lot alike about the way medicine is right now because we're kind of old and hopefully have a lot of experience. But today we want to talk about back pain. And Ken, thank you so much for coming on sure, here. Glad to. This is just an amazing honor for me to have you on the show. And we're going to talk about something that really needs to be talked about from almost everybody our age, including me. I mean, I'm 69 years old. The only thing that bothers me, I can tell you, is back. My back hurts a lot. I think yours may too. Yes, mine does also. So just for a little bit of history, I was a uh, weightlifter, a terrible power lifter through college, bad form, back when uh, all you had to do was build up your chest and legs and everything else would follow, which was not true. So it's plagued me for about 25 or 30 years now. Also have studies, which uh, we can hopefully review on the next one. Uh, and I don't have anything that's operable. So... Uh, I'm a fairly good barometer of what you can and can't do with surgery. You know, that's, that brings up the whole point of, of this podcast because I guarantee you most people that get RAs, they've either had a back problem or they're going to have back pain. And a lot of times as a primary care doctor, you know, we see these people, they're suffering obviously until I had my own back problems. I, I kind of thought, well, they're just maybe faking it or they're, you know, it's not really that bad. But if you've had serious back problems, I mean, it's it's awful. It's awful, god-awful pain, and it needs to be dealt with. So as a primary care doctor, when somebody comes to see me, um, I examine them. I look at their extremities, see if they have good reflexes and pulses and straight leg raising tests and all that. And if it doesn't get better, I treat them. If it doesn't get better, I get an MRI maybe, maybe a plain film. Um, but the question is when to refer to a neurosurgeon that can fix the back. A lot, most of the time, it's not a neuro, neurologic problem or a surgical problem. What, what's your advice to, to people and to doctors like me who uh, are not getting anywhere with their patients? You know, we're giving them muscle relaxers, NSAIDs even pain medicine, putting them through therapy, they still have chronic pain. Right, so I'll go over a little bit over the specialist system here. It's divided itself up in parcel people, unfortunately, into parts. So um, the neurosurgeons get more and more referrals now because of the people coming out, because of the disparate types of treatments that are available. Uh, can't keep up with all of them. It's hard to keep up with the jargon on the radiographic reports. Some of them are almost completely unreadable uh, to me, even me sometimes. And the issue is what do you do with those when you have a problem that you look at as primary care and you can't solve. You don't want to miss out on a potential treatment, but you don't want to send the person to the wrong person. 
neurologists tend to get problems that come from non-surgical, non-spine issues. So they're generally uh, put on the sidelines. The people that usually get these are neurosurgeons and pain management. Again, they both have a really narrow field. Neurosurgeons are looking for patients to operate on. And if you don't fit that, which about 22% of people fit, the other 78% go somewhere else. And usually that's pain management. If their injections and ablations don't work, then they wander. So the, what I'm doing right now is seeing people initially for that, advising them whether they need surgery or not, and guiding them through that maze and hopefully get them to a place where their pain is controllable. That's invaluable because you're right. People get lost in the shuffle. You send them to a neurosurgeon and they're not operable. So they circle back to your office. They don't know what to do. And as primary care doctors these days, we really can't do much pain management. So Correct. we turf them off to a pain center and a lot of which can be great. I mean, they do a lot of things that they didn't used to be able to do like um, epidurals, ablations, and some of the other procedures. But these people a lot of times get lost in the shuffle. Sorry about that. But um, so what do, you, what do you tell a patient like this to do? I'm glad you're going to do this because really somebody needs to take, be a point person to, to direct these people on how to do. Because I know the primary care docs don't know what to do with them. And a lot of times they may not need an ablation or want an ablation or a spinal implant. So what's your idea about how you're going to direct these people now? Well, you have to start initially as almost an internal medicine physician. What I did a year of internal medicine before I did surgery. Um, so I have background in that. You have to look over the whole set of issues. Where is the pain coming from? Is it out of proportion to the radiographic findings? Does the person have an autoimmune disease? It's amplifying it. Does the person have a past history of opiate use, which may amplify it? Did the person have a job in which the radiographic studies won't accurately reflect what is wrong with them, such as coal miners, truck drivers, and their migratory uh, environments where they're vibrating, uh, airline pilots, strangely enough, uh, stewardesses, people of that nature, uh, long-haul car drivers, somebody who shuttled uh, vehicles back and forth. So they may hurt out of proportion to the radiographic studies. So you have to investigate anything that may amplify their pain, including their past history. You know, I think that's exactly true because when I look at my back x-ray and my MRI, it looks pretty bad. I mean, to the, even to an average person, it looks kind of bad. So you really can't correlate it too much with how you feel. For example, I have no radiculopathy. I'm very stiff in my lumbar spine, but you know, it's tolerable most of the time, but it's bothersome. But you're right. Sometimes these x-rays look awful, and then you get an interpretation that says you have different kind of nodes, and you have this, and the patient may look on their portal and get really worried. It's on a Friday afternoon, and they, they freak out. They think they have cancer or something. But how do you deal with that? Uh, I bring people in and show them the radiographic study, go over the reading and tell them if that is the radiologist reading, 
and most radiologists are not neuroradiologists. Most neuroradiologists are not in the habit anymore of going into the OR with neurosurgeons. So is that specialty gets farther and farther away from surgery and actually seeing what surgery does, they, became, they become less able to guide the patient through their interpretations. And uh, they are almost invisible when you try to call and ask for an interpretation. Uh, a lot of people read remotely, and uh, a lot of the, the information you get is of academic interest, but not functional interest. Right. So uh, I thought I'd go over real quickly the kind of things that we can deal with in surgery and then talk about a little bit of what we can do without surgery and then next time hopefully review some radiographs. Uh, I can do mine, you can do yours. We may try to find somebody who's normal and show somebody what that looks like. Somebody who's young. Yes, somebody who's hopefully normal, hopefully normal and older. So this is a lumbar spine. <clears throat> this is us facing ourselves and this is us lying on our back. Now, one of the major issues is radiologists are a little bit strange, and I hope a couple of them hear this. They look at things from the bottom up, so it's backwards from what you would think. This is not the left side on the radiograph. This is the right side, so people initially get confused with that. This is where the spinal cord gives off a spray of nerve roots called the cauda equina, or horse's tail. So when you do an autopsy or uh, you do a dissection, it just sprays out like a wire wisp. And each level, these nerve roots will come off to run your legs. And when you said radiculopathy, that means pushing on one of these things, which used to be called a radical, and causing a specific type of pain. For example, an L4 nerve root will sweep across the front of your thigh and end right down below your knee. An L5 will go down the back of your leg, flip to the outside, and then over into your big toe and arch of your foot like your shoes are too tight. An S1 goes to the outside of the foot and the ball of the foot. So if somebody tells us that, we immediately start working to get an image type that will tell us if that is indeed the issue and if it's surgically fixable. First is MRI because it's relatively non-invasive, doesn't involve x-rays, and generally gives us a decent picture. All MRIs are not created equal, and some magnets are better than others, some software packages are better than others, and I try to guide people to whoever has the best magnet and software package rather than the hospital or organization that has bought it. Many times people will buy older used magnets that aren't very in tune and will turn out images that aren't usable surgically. You can't make a decision off of them. So that's another field in which people can be guided properly in, in order to at least get the first initial study. How would the average person know what they're getting? They don't. They don't. As a matter of fact, if you talk with the people who sell the magnets, uh, oftentimes after they get through, you don't know what you're getting. But the only way to do it is to run someone through one and look at it. So in general, the higher the Tesla, which is the magnetic field strength, the better because the acquisition time for the image is slow, is uh, faster, and the movements that you naturally make, breathing, you know, et cetera, are diminished. The lower field strength magnets, there's still some one Teslas around, probably can't acquire the image fast enough to get rid of the motion artifact. Second is a software package, and does it get rid of artifacts? Do you have metal embedded in your back from 
a welding accident or from the military or do you have implants? So there are suppression packages that can be put on those in order to get a better picture of, of exactly what's happening. And if that doesn't tell you, you can go to a myelogram, which is a test in which a needle is put into this sack here. The, the fluid that is put into that turns up as white on the scan and you're able to see by looking at where there is not white and where something is pushed in exactly what's going on. So you may need all three of those. The myelogram used to be done before MRIs came about, is that, is that not That's right? correct. Okay. And some people have. It was an old dye uh, called pantopaque and it was uh, oil-based and it would actually had to be withdrawn afterwards and if you tilt it on your head and you look at a plain head film of that, it looks like somebody's got buckshot in their head because all of the, wow. the material would go out into the little hiding areas in the CSF spaces in the head. We don't do that anymore, but we are on the lookout for, for that particular type of dye. That is really interesting. Should a person have a plain film on their back to look at it as well? The, the purpose of plain films is to rule out something grossly immediate like a fracture, uh, a lucency that you can see that might be a tumor or the bones not growing particularly well. They're getting less and less useful but unfortunately, and I'll mention this uh, as even handily as I can, insurance companies are asking or demanding they be done before an MRI. Uh, so you may have to get one because of your insurance even though your specialist says you don't need one. You know as primary care doctors we're always taught that with chronic back pain, you better look for cancer. Is that true? Do you find a lot of cancers in the spine because of back pain? Uh, the only one that we find frequently is prostate cancer. Metastatic prostate Metastatic cancer. Metastatic prostate. It will make the bone uh, appear more opaque, and actually as if there's more bone growing in there. And you're still going to wind up getting an MRI later anyway. So um, my feeling is that if a specialist orders uh, an MRI, uh, especially if they have no financial interest in it, they ought to, the patient ought to get their MRI, but the world doesn't work that way sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, so if you get a patient that obviously has pain or numbness or their foot is dragging, that needs to be taken care of, doesn't it? Because can't they, if they wait too long, can't they have permanent nerve damage and it's not reversible? You can. The one that's the most common is an L5 nerve root. Uh, compression and that is a small nerve root physiologically and the muscles it goes to which are in the front of your leg are small so if you let them atrophy and let the nerve root get compressed a long time uh, that's the most difficult to have uh, return and that is classically called a steppage gait where the person picks their foot up so high because it's hanging like this and then slaps it in front of them so when you see somebody with that, they need to have some type of immediate care to prevent that from becoming permanent. Any other urgent things that need to be looked out for, signs of immediate uh, uh, go to the emergency room and uh, get your x-ray then or anything in, else? In the lumbar spine, the only other emergency is called cauda equina syndrome or CES. And that is when this canal is squeezed so much that the nerves are in jeopardy of being permanently damaged as a whole group. In those, generally, you get overflow incontinence. 
that is that you can't sense when your bladder needs to be emptied and actually overflows and some people get bowel or bladder I mean uh, bowel incontinence sorry and um, that is generally uh, poor sensation uh, in that area so if that happens you need to call an ambulance and get taken to the nearest facility that can fix it and do those people usually have a lot of pain with it no the, the the several that i've seen in the past four or five years that came into the emergency room were really difficult to diagnose because they you can also have weakness with an evolving type of bowel and bladder syndrome and you just have to be suspicious of it it is uh, probably the biggest medical legal fear of emergency room doctors and primary care doctors because once it becomes fully blown, it's hard to recover. That is really a good tip. Um, so if you lose bowel or bladder, go to the emergency room. Yes, yeah, so you'll notice that your, your, your bladder is full, but you don't feel it. So somebody will say, look at you and say, hmm, it doesn't look exactly right. And in those cases, uh, you need to get evaluated by a facility that, that can take care of the problem. What what I find is, especially due to different state laws, is people get taken to the closest place they can be stabilized, quote unquote. That may not be a place that can take care of the problem. So it's important that the emergency room physician or whoever's working in there have access to somebody who can take care of that, whether they have to helicopter you out or not. That's kind of scary, especially in a rural area like we live in, you know, back in some of the areas that it, we it, service. It is, and I think to their credit, most of the emergency room doctors in the surrounding areas are very attuned to that particular problem. Uh, where it gets a little sticky is when you get into areas that are more urban, but the surrounding doctors don't realize the limitations of the hospital systems, and they send them to one, they get transferred to another, then maybe another. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of what I do in my practice is based on prevention, healthy aging, and you certainly sent me a lot of patients through the years for, you know, to treat their obesity, their metabolic syndrome, their low hormones, which play a huge role in how your spine's going to be, because when you lose muscle and you're automatically losing bone as well, you're in trouble. What advice do you have for a person that wants to keep their back in shape, that's really may, maybe having minor problems or no problems, what do you recommend that they do? As far as I see you in the gym, we've worked out many times together. Is it a matter of doing just weightlifting, light weightlifting? What would your advice be? Being a former power lifter and neurosurgeon, you've seen the, the collapsed spines. We tend to load up our spines with squats and heavy deadlifts what would your advice be in that yeah, regard you give up the good mornings and the deadlifts the the issue with the things that we can fix and the things i see most commonly are lumbar stenosis this area simply squeezes in the joints fold in this way and this way the bone gets generally gets a little harder because the person is a heavy worker or uh, is lifting a lot of weight and it squeezes down on this the sack of nerve roots here. And that is called lumbar spinal stenosis. That is when you can walk for variable distances, maybe 10 feet, maybe 50 feet, and you have to lean over. You see people leaning over their carts in, in the you know, grocery store uh, or at a larger store, and what they're doing is they're opening up their back just a little bit, getting maybe another millimeter 
within several years they won't be able to do that. That is imminently fixable by simply slotting this here and pulling this off. So that is, is one issue that's related to what we're talking about. The second is if you extrude a piece of disc and it comes out and sticks into the nerve root and that can be fixed either by the body metabolizing that. There's zinc related enzymes. Don't go crazy on the zinc because it's pretty nauseating, but um, it, zinc related enzymes that actually chew that disc up. Now, I've had people with disc extrusions larger than my thumb that came out and they said, let me just go back home and think about it. And they came back in three or four months and I re-MR'd them and it was gone. That's amazing. So that, that can happen. Um, the, what do you do to prevent that? The main thing is to keep all of the musculature and realizing it's 360, it's not just what you see in the mirror, it's not just rectus abdominis. There are, you know, strided systems back that look, you know, a lot like harp strings that come through and they're called generally the erector spiny muscles. They're the hardest to get at. You've got your oblique musculature of your abdomen, internal, external obliques, and you have the serratus, which is what gives you this kind of striation here, and then you've got the rectus muscles. So about one and a half times a week to two times a week uh, doing abdominal uh, musculature training will get you pretty much what you need. It's, you're not going to be able to train it fast. Um, you're not going to be able to use anabolic steroids to make it grow faster. It just is a result of direct training. If you look at a soccer player or a bicyclist, competitive bicyclist, they have very well-developed musculature. Interesting. So do you think a plank is a good exercise to do to, to help <sighs> they, those muscles? They bore me. I know they, they, they are <laughs> good, boring. but they, they're boring. So what I usually do is design a, a program with people um, that is scalable. They can start slowly and then add weight in some way or other as they get better. And that's just my particular preference. There's some people who love doing uh, isometric type exercises. It just doesn't have to be something I like to do. When you get in and you operate on these spines, when you get in there and you look at the quality of bone, what do you sometimes you find? Are you sometimes surprised at how brittle it is or? A couple of things can happen. One is the trabeculae, which are the, the system that go in actually inside the bone would be in one of these spinous processes, for example, or transverse process. The architecture is not very uh, robust and it is a lot, you can crunch through it with a, an instrument real easily. In other people, it's incredibly hard. And in the primary things that keep it strong or as you mentioned for men and for women, but it's a little more delicate with them, enough uh, androgen, enough testosterone, uh, a proper uh, balance of uh, bearing, weight bearing. Weight bearing is why men have less issues with osteoporosis than women do, but they continue to get it uh, as they age. And evaluation of your uh, bone quality probably after 55 years old or so. And that is called a DEXA scan. There's another kind that can read the intensity of the trabecular bone in here, which is a, uh, a CT scan, uh, which is a dual radiation type of CT mm -hmm. uh, that you can actually see the architecture of the bone. 
So those, especially in postmenopausal women, are very important. And there are different types of drugs that you can take in order to prevent resorption or increase bone growth. Unfortunately, the first one was this terrible uh, pill that made people uh, get gastritis and insurance Fosamax. Yes, insurance company insists that you take it first, which again, uh, they have no business prescribing, but uh, there are other ways to get it now. Uh, you can do it monthly or yearly yeah, yeah. with different types of medications. Or you can take hormones like estrogen that will protect your bones. You, and the, yes, you can. And, just and again, testosterone. It's for women. Women need testosterone just like men do. They do. It's just a little bit tougher, tougher to balance out. But yeah. if I had anything to say about the, the most uh, prominent issue that I see in primary care is that this is just a problem of aging. And once the physician says that, the person stops looking for a cure. So yeah. if you have, and I don't know where I got it, I've got a little compression fracture in my lumbar spine. Um, it, and I don't think it was due to bone issues. I think it was due to me issues. But you can get those quite easily if your bones are, are a little bit softer. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to have a compression fracture. So at the front part in here, is lower than this part that's going to bend you over even farther so the the prevention is first with a good evaluation by somebody who knows what they're looking for then beginning to exercise appropriately uh, once you've been cleared to do that and follow up to make sure that exercise did what you wanted it to do and posture is important too, isn't it? I mean, look at the way that it is. The and this is curves. real interesting because this is called lordosis. So if you notice, this is like a slinky. So when you walk, you're doing this. This should go back this way. And we, one of the ways we can tell people are injured cervically is this straightens out. So this goes back this way, this this way, and this down here. And this lordosis right here is what causes what's called listhesis. So as these joints wear out here and here, these have a vector down this way and it is able to roll this vertebral body over this disc. And you begin to get, this will hang out over this edge here. And that is a problem that generally gets picked up during the initial evaluation, followed to see if it's a surgical uh, cause of problems. If it is, you get neat things like this I was noticing that. That looks pretty cool right there. It does. They, all these expensive things have great colors on them. And these are pedicle screws. They go in. These rods hold them together. You put bone here and here. It fuses. And you've lost the use of the space here, but it's not moving around anymore. Puts more work on this guy mm -hmm. and this guy. So if you need even more work, you can put something like this, which is courtesy of Globus. Drop a name or two. Um, and this has the pedicle screws in it, and you can see they're longer than that. They made them shorter so you could see this. And this is a little device that opens up larger in the front than the back. It's basically a jack, and through this small hole here in which it's opened, you can also put bone that you've gotten from drilling, fill this area with bone so you'll have fusion all the way around without having to go through the abdomen. So this is one of the tools that we can use surgically when you have issues. But like I said, only 22 to 23% of people who come to neurosurgeons need neurosurgery. Mm -hmm. So where does that leave 
the other 77 to 78% of people who are just out wandering. In a lot of pain. There's yeah. a lot of disability. There's a lot of early retirements, a lot of chronic pain, misery. Yeah, uh, and, and a lot of curtailing. People just circumscribe what they can do, and pretty soon you talk with people, and they go, I didn't go on a trip, you know. Uh, you know, my family went without me, and now the dog's gone because I'm grouchy. And uh, it really does affect your life. Pain is something that needs to be treated, but it needs to be treated appropriately so that you don't get into a spiral of increasing use of opiates. Yeah. Yep. I've always said there's two things people go to see a doctor for. Either they're tired or they hurt. That's about, unless it's a routine check or a sinus. They're either tired or they hurt. That's They're looking for help. Now, one other thing I noticed here was this. Is that a spinal stimulator? This is a dorsal column stimulator. And this initially, a little backstory, um, this was started by the dorsal column stimulation uh, was invented by uh, Wall and Melzack who found traditionally if you hurt your finger you don't sit there and look at it you shake it or do something else to give some other input to to mask the pain they found that the dorsal columns which are in the back of this area here actually in the thoracic spine uh, if you stimulate them it prevents uptalk of pain so this is basically started out with Medtronic as a modified pacemaker and they've gotten much more sophisticated. You've got ways that you can put these pads in uh, with a small operation, or a pain medicine doctor can put them in with a small round lead and usually put a pair of them in so that you don't have to have a particular surgery. This goes someplace. Unfortunately, I find people don't like where it goes usually. I usually try to put it right here, but no matter where you put it, uh, it's getting caught on something, your belt, et cetera. They've gotten a lot smaller. Uh, they are good for a certain type of pain, what we call neuropathic pain, pain that happens after surgery, after nerve injury, et cetera. There's a growing tendency to put them in, in people with uh, nociceptive pain, which is pain coming from the joints and people who aren't surgical candidates that's still up in the air as to how well it's going to do. There's not a whole lot of literature on it yet. There are a few scattered articles to support it. The nice thing about this is you can test it with a lead that comes out through the skin with a little box you can put on and adjust it yourself. The problem is the placebo effect. Everybody wants to get better. You test it for seven days. It was great. You put this in and uh, all of a sudden it doesn't work as well at two months. I've taken more out than I've put in. That's interesting. Are you excited about the technology that's around the corner for backs? No, not really. Um, it, it is unfortunately uh, linked to procedures and the procedure reimbursement is linked to how much stuff you do. And so the quicker you can put these in, get out, not necessarily taking care of all the issues, but just get them in there, the better off you do. So you have to find somebody who has a good balance of wanting to perform an operation in the proper way before you let somebody put, and it's okay to get another opinion. Uh, and it doesn't insult, shouldn't insult the physician. No, uh, I agree 100%. And it's also difficult to find where should you go just because a, a facility has a name doesn't mean that they have a good surgeon who does these. 
So that's one of the things that we do is keep up with people who are doing them, doing them well. So we can refer people to places that do complex procedures uh, and have the facility to do it and do it well. I like I like the way you said that. You know, it's a there's second there's certainly no hard feelings with a physician on getting a second opinion. As a matter of fact, if they don't want you to, there's a problem with that physician, in my opinion. There uh, is. I usually tell people uh, when I was operating, I, I want you to do that. If you really feel you need to, and most people come back because they're, they're comfortable. But again, the medical system has parsed people up into such small packets that everybody that falls in between falls out. And because they hurt, you don't see them out in public. They're not out telling you their problems. They're at home. And pretty soon, they begin to lose muscle mass, as you said. They don't exercise. They become relatively asocial. And it's a downward spiral unless you can get that stopped. So the earlier you address these problems, the better. Because if you wait too long, you may not be able to help you. But um, so I'm, I'm really excited about what you're telling me today about these backs, and I'm glad you're in a position where you can actually give advice to people on what to do. You're more focused on that right now, and certainly through the many years that you've practiced medicine, you've done incredible things. I mean, you know, I've seen it. I mean, I've sent brain tumors to you, cancers, and, you know, you're doing all this stuff with backs, but you're doing stuff with heads as well. I mean, it has to be the hardest especially in medicine that there is what you've done and certainly it's just amazing what you you're able, and you serve this community for so many years that my hat's off to you well, I, pre I appreciate it but my one of my professors who is now dead uh rest his soul would, would tell us quite frequently and he usually look at me when he was doing he said you can teach a baboon to operate but you can't teach him to think so um his point was you know think before you operate you can't unoperate when you've yeah. done something. Always operate later yeah. if you have to. So, um, there was something else brilliant I was going to talk with you about. Can you read my mind and tell what it was? Um, Wait, that was it. Yeah, okay. The, yeah. Everybody's <clears throat> least favorite subject. Yep. And primary care doctors are reluctant to pursue weight loss because it makes the patient angry and they go somewhere else. And they may have three or four problems that physician has under good control, and then they go somewhere else and they lose their blood pressure control or cholesterol control, et cetera. So uh, that's a taboo area, but people have to realize that a lot of times the problems in these issues are weight. So if you're standing here like this, you have a stomach out here, it's actually doing terrible things just pulling down as well as pushing this way yeah, yeah. so having you know a physique where my ideal body weight for my back is about 20 pounds lighter than what my mouth tells me i want it to be it's very difficult and i understand but weight control now is even more important than ever you got better drugs and uh you, you can expound on those a little bit to help people you know with weight control we do you know 18 years ago when i went off and hung my own shingle at performance medicine it was really with the sole purpose of treating obesity because in my practice everything bad came from obesity high blood pressure diabetes high lipid lip, poor lipid management 
depression, anxiety, joint pain, back pain. I mean, I've often said that this nation's number one health care problem is obesity. Number two is drug abuse. But number one by far to me is obesity. If we went back to an average weight in, in 1960, you know, there would be no health care crisis in this country because the average man weighed 160 pounds. The average woman weighed 115. Now it's 40 pounds above that. So one of my purposes has been to get people just to lose weight because everything gets better. You sent me many patients because, and so have the other surgeons in town, like my brother, they can't even operate on them. They can't get them on the table. They're afraid to operate on them. They're too risky. Plus, you, you replace a knee or do a laminectomy. I mean, if you if you weigh 300 pounds, it's not going to last very long. So no. I think you're – I'm glad you brought that up because I get kind of excited about obesity because I love treating it. I love the new ways we have to treat it. Obesity is terribly misunderstood. It's a, a metabolism problem, you know, and it shouldn't be shamed. Um, people obviously may not eat right, but – Life is not fair. They have a different metabolism than somebody else. So it kind of gets complex, but there are ways to get it fixed. And you're usually going to need help. I mean, not many people can do that on their own. You can't just take the advice, oh, just eat less, exercise more. That's very difficult to do when it, you have insulin resistance and these gut hormones called incretins that are messing the whole thing up. There's really not a thing called willpower when that comes to weight loss i don't think i've learned through the years a lot about it and certainly uh it's a little more complex and harder to to do than the average person thinks yeah there are people that come and i believe them they say i don't eat very much mm -hmm. and you know they they look roly-poly and you tend to say oh, you really you know you really are but there are people that come that have had gastric bypasses sleeves etc that slowly gain it back and the the most common uh, reason that's preventable is grazing, yep. which you yep. just leave stuff around the house, which uh, yep. uh, I inherited from yep. my family, and uh, I tend to do. You take, you get rid of that, and part of your problem's gone. But the other part, the metabolic part, that has to be looked at very carefully and handled very delicately because it's a societal issue also. And the idea that someone is unhealthy unhealthily large and they're somebody to be emulated is simply wrong that's exactly right and our food industry the things that's in our food what they push it's very tempting to eat all the time and man was not made to graze we we're made to feast or fast so um, certainly that's a great point about grazing it's just terrible for you you want to burn your own fat you don't eat you know, you, go, you do some intermittent fasting at the least, but um, otherwise you'll never utilize your own fat stores for energy. But, um, but anyway, this has been such a great session. We're going to do another one where we actually yeah. have you go over some x-rays, and maybe we'll review some of those. Yeah, uh, we'll demystify. I'll use my own as an example of bad behavior and uh, demystify some of the pieces. And also, I encourage people to not immediately read your radiographic report, uh, realizing that it may be in a language that's increasingly foreign. And I'll give you an example. There uh, was a construct called an annular tear in radiology. And the annulus is this ring right here. 
And so I would operate on people with annular tears, and I have a large Zeiss operating microscope, and magnification is incredible. I couldn't find a tear, and I finally went to the radiologist, and they said, that's just one of our concepts. That's what we call it. It doesn't have any correlation to an actual tear. Mm. So at that point, mm. I said, you know, the, these theoretical considerations are hard to interpret. So at that point, I began interpreting more of the radiographic studies for people in plain surgical English rather than radiologist ease. I like that. You're right. It's kind of scary when I see a report that's three pages long on a back, and the bottom line is you're okay. You don't need surgery. And yet if you looked at it, you'd think, oh, my God, look at all that stuff I've got going on in my back when it's really – kind of normal yeah so, yeah uh, this we can go over that and we can pull a few films up and a few normal and maybe i can show your back too for yeah, what, not, not, what not to do my, my back's not good either uh dr ken smith thank you so much for coming on here we're going to do this again and uh kudos to you on a, you just have had a fantastic career you've helped so many tens of thousands of people in life-saving situations. I've followed you around the hospital. I've seen what you do and respect you have around this community. It's just been just amazing what you've done. So thank you so much, and we'll do this again. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, we'll see you guys next week.